The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Some people expect solutions to be expensive to be effective. This is not true. Everyone needs somebody who can be supportive and a guide. You'll find the answers you're looking for and the tools to both find answers and offer solutions on the Dr. Melanie Show. Now, here's your host, Dr. Melanie Barton. And Wellness Channel of Voice America. Today, coming live from Phoenix, Arizona. This episode is sponsored by the Interstitial Cystitis Association. Today, we're talking about the importance of research for IC patients. My first guest is Dr. Lee Nyberg. He is the former senior urology advisor and director of the urology programs for the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases of the National Institutes of Health. My second guest is Dr. Robert Moldwin, Director of the Pelvic Pain Center at the Smith Institute for Urology at the Long Island Jewish Medical Center. Be sure to go to the ICA website, www.ichelp.org, for more information, and go to my website, www.thedrmelanieshow.com, for all kinds of resources. So now let's listen to the first part of my interview with Dr. Nyberg. Fortunate today for me to be interviewing Dr. Lee Nyberg, who is retired from the National Institutes of Health, where he was the program director. So I'm very glad you're willing to do this interview in your retirement. Thank you. So we have much to discuss because you have been around for a long time in relation to interstitial cystitis and helping with many projects. So I consider you to be very knowledgeable and an expert to ask all these questions of you. Okay. So it's really important to do research for patients who have interstitial cystitis. Why? What's the reason for that? Well, I, I think uh, everybody who has the disease or family members or people who know patients with the IC know that it is a very troubling, chronic, painful disorder. And, but it affects every individual differently. Yes. Uh, and that makes it a very difficult disease to study. Um, and so we need to have standardized approaches to uh, study the disease in afflicted patients. We need large numbers of patients um, so that we can get all of that information together to help us learn about the disease. 
Now, is there a database that you draw from to be able to do this research? Um, there is not a database that we have. To be honest, we use the um, the resources of the Interstitial Cystitis Association um, many times in providing us patients and also uh, the uh, patients from clinicians who treat lots of those patients. Okay. And how long does it take to design a study? You know, if, if somebody wants to do one from start to finish, how long is that process usually? Well, um, usually I'd say we take six to nine months to get a study designed. Okay. Um, and that includes not only the design, but the forms that have to be um, manufactured um, to be utilized with the patients. And then um, once when the study is designed and ready to be implemented, most studies take about three years, three mm. to five years to conduct. My goodness. And then we have to uh, analyze the data. That probably takes another six to nine months. Mm. So it's a long process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this research, is it... To find effective treatments, to find medications, what what kind of things? Are oh there? well, when many things can be done with the research, we can we still need to characterize the patients. Meaning, what there's a core of symptoms they have, uh, chronic pelvic pain, for example. But a lot, almost every patient is an individual and has many other associated. Uh, conditions or, or problems associated with it. So we have to collect all of that data. Mm. Um, so that can be a study in itself. Yes. You can study a disease, what's called a longitudinal study, mm-hmm. and study it over a length of time just to see what when it flares, what causes flares, what causes it to go in remission. Mm-hmm. We can take cells from the patient and study those at the bench, as we say. Mm. Um, we can try it with different drugs, and we can clinically um, give patients drugs to see what it does to their symptoms or what it does to the cells. So there are many ways to study the disease. When you've got so many comorbid conditions that go along with the interstitial cystitis or uh, painful bladder syndrome, how do you get to do a comparison between patients when, you, you know, just need, you need a lot of patients. Okay. Okay. Uh, so you can put them in various categories and study them as a group. Okay. And this is men and women? Well, I, I, we're not sure. Uh, certainly men are do have the disease. Uh-huh. And um, quite frequently they are not studied. Um, and we focus on women since the majority of the disease is found in women. Um, and we don't know if we can combine men and women together or not. Okay. But are there specific studies that are done on men with interstitial? Yes, there are. Oh, yes, good. There are. Oh, good. Because I've had men with IC ask me that, and I didn't know. Yeah, they're a lot less than with women, but yes, there are. Okay. Well, maybe as the studies are done, they'll determine more things so that there can be more studies, more specific Absolutely. Things. Absolutely. Good. Well, who is the person or the business or the company that can be doing research? What are the criteria that people have to follow to be allowed to do research? Well, I mean, almost anybody can do research, 
but to do research which is accepted and published so other people can read it, um, you need really an experienced um, investigator or researcher. It doesn't mean the person has to be a physician. Um, Well-qualified nurses do it. We have a lot of PhDs do it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, People with master's degrees, but they need experience in... um, doing research, knowing what to collect, how much to collect, for how long. Mm-hmm. Um, so experience, I would say, is, is, is the um, experience in research, and it doesn't have to be experience in IC research, but they also have to have people associated with them that know the patient and know the characteristics of an IC patient. Okay. And they have to be able to study and follow all the guidelines about doing no harm to the patient. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the cost to do research, it's astronomical, I would think, for the length well, of it's time. Not, it's, <laughs> it's not astronomical. Okay. Uh, but it is expensive. I would say to do a, a good typical study would cost um, on a large number of patients, probably in more than one location or site, would cost um, close to a million dollars a year. Mm. Um, And ideally, you'd like to do that for five years. So that's sort of an average. Certainly, some are done less, $500,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's expensive. It's certainly in the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to do good research, which will be published and make an impact on understanding the disease. Okay. So the process of of starting to do um, the research, can you explain what the process is? Uh, the process. <laughs> well, first of all, you have to think of, what you want to do. Think of uh, a project that you want to do. Then you have to get people that will do it with you, that fit um, people that have access to patients, people that know how to analyze data, people that can uh, monitor the patients. And then you got to go and find and get the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, a lot of times you start with what's called a pilot study. Okay. And that is just a small study which is not meant to give you results that will impact the disease, but it's meant to show whether it is possible to do the study the way you have designed it. Okay. And that's, that's relatively inexpensive. Um, but, and, and you're not going to do that for five years. You're maybe going to do it for six months. You're trying to find out, will patients do this, or can you get the cells that you need? Um, and the way you've designed it, can you get the data that you want? So it's really a feasibility study, um, okay. and you're not doing it to actually come up with results. But you need to know, if, before you invest in a million dollars, you'd like to know that what you are doing is feasible to be done. Mm-hmm. And you do have to answer to somebody. It's not you just do this all by yourself. I mean, if you, you get money from someone, you're going to answer to them. Right. Correct. You, yes. You've got to follow the guidelines and, and do what yeah. they require. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that I can understand. It's, it's money that's being given <laughs> to you. A lot of money that can be realized. There are a lot of diseases out there that 
if you have a, a chronic disease, you think, and, and, and realistically, your disease deserves the money. Mm-hmm. And that's realistic. And um, so you have to show to the person that gave you money, you are making progress, you're, you have a well-designed study, and you're going to make an impact on that disease that people gave money to. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. a lot of people with horrible diseases need that money. Yes. And they may not have the capability of somebody to lobby for them or or Correct. to to go um, to they Congress. Get lost and, in the shuffle. Yeah. Uh huh. As I see does frequently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's what people don't understand is the money that is given isn't often given just for one cause. Right. Right. It's given for. Um, a broad um, description of diseases. And so then you got to say, hey, you know, my disease deserves it more than another. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to do. No, it is not. People don't understand and think, well, how come they get it and we don't? But it's... Right, especially a disease which, like I see, mm-hmm. um, which is poorly understood by um, many people, um, both... Um, uh, Common laymen as well as clinicians, nurses, and doctors. Mm-hmm. I can understand that. Well, it's time for us to take a break. So if you're okay, let's go ahead and take a break, and we will okay. continue after the break. Okay. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Approximately 1 in 150 children are affected by autism, giving autism the undesired ranking as the most prevalent childhood developmental disorder in the U.S. 67 children will be diagnosed today. That is nearly one child every 20 minutes. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Terry Aranga, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the bride's future. Autism is treatable and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Terry offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcast each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health the Wellness Channel, Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Are you living your vital life? One that is showcasing you at your full potential? There are many issues that stand in the way of most people achieving their full potential. We will discuss these issues and how to overcome them each week on The Vital Life, Awakening Your Full Potential, with host Dr. Carolyn Coker-Ross. Living the vital life often requires that we trust our own intuitive voice and that we view illness or life challenges as calls to action. To reconnect 
with the deeper urges of our spirit or soul. Tune in Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to The Dr. Melanie Show with your host, Dr. Melanie Barton. To participate in our discussion this week, please call toll-free 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send an email to drmelaniebarton at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to The Dr. Melanie Show. We're listening to the interview with Dr. Nyberg, who's retired director from the National Institutes of Health. He's talking to us about how you get research funded. Today's program is sponsored by the ICA. You can get more information going to www.ichelp.org. Let's listen to the second part of the interview. Okay, we are back here with Dr. Nyberg, who is retired from the National Institutes of Health, and we're talking about research for interstitial cystitis. So on the break, I was asking Dr. Nyberg to maybe tell us a little bit a bit about some of the research he was involved in concerning IC when he was there at NIH. So can you tell us about some of that? Sure. That stretches back um, quite a few years. Uh-huh. Um, since- the NIH has been involved in IC research. And one of the first big projects we did was called the Interstitial Cystitis Database Project. And you asked about the database in the first half. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and we did. Um, and that was just to collect data, um, urine, uh, blood samples, and cells from patients with IC and characterize them. We didn't... Um, the purpose was not to treat the disease, um, but to find out what happens with these patients over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a big study, an interstitial cystitis database project. Um, and from that, we um, really uh, we learned about the different categories of patients with the disease, um, uh, the occurrence of flares, remissions, and we allowed the patients to be treated by whatever their local physician was treating them. So we also learned some of the effects that um, interventions have on the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, then we did um, uh, basic research studies. We did um, those are smaller studies done by usually one individual, and we did a series of Oh, quite a few of those, and some of them are still ongoing, actually, oh. using cells from patients or um, uh, it, it, ideally we'd like to have a good animal model that we can study, and we really don't. Mm-hmm. Um, there is sort of the cat, um, which does come down with something similar to IC, but it's not exactly the same, and that has been studied. Um, and then we've done... Um, studies looking at the effect of uh, some drugs on um, the disease, and more recently we completed the RICE study, the RAND IC epidemiology study, which again was not um, an intervention study, but it started looking at the comorbidities 
uh, what they are, who has them, and um, how they're affected, such as if you get a flare, does the comorbidity is the comorbidity affected as well? Mm-hmm. And for those well, listeners that may not understand what comorbidity means, can you explain that to them, please? Comorbidity is uh, another set of symptoms, not the painful bladder symptoms, but, uh, for example, fibromyalgia or um, GI gastrointestinal symptoms that that patient has associated with the disease. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's helpful. Thank you. Okay. So the epidemiological study that was done back in the 80s, did the National Institutes of Health do that? Yes, we did. Okay, because I remember that. I, I went to one of the conferences back then that was put oh, on. Oh, okay. And okay. when all that was... We probably met each other. Oh, yeah. I have been to many of the conferences. So, yes, I have I have met you from afar, not up, you know, <laughs> up close. But, yeah, I've been, <laughs> I've been around since 1984. So, yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, lots of times. So. Okay. So, if somebody because it's a term we're throwing around because you and I understand it, but other people don't. So can you explain what it is, please? Sure. Um, the National Institutes of Health is, first of all, the largest funding health research funding organization in the world. Okay. It is a, fend- a federal uh, agency. Um, and as you said, it's the National Institutes of Health. It is composed of, I don't know the exact number anymore, but over 20 various institutes or centers uh, of focused on various types of research. Um, so I think, so it, 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 it funds research in the United States and it funds research worldwide. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And where do the monies come from to fund this? As I said, it's a federal agency. Okay. So it's your tax dollar and my tax dollar that funds that research, basically. Okay. All the money is federal money that's derived through the federal system. Okay. And that process of... Basically the tax system... Okay, okay. So this year, because there was less money available to do that, that affected lots of research. Correct. Um, in uh, previously, we used to be Congress used to be able to what's called earmark funds, mm-hmm. and they could say when they appropriated money to the NIH that. A certain amount of money had to go for IC research. Mm-hmm. That is called earmarking. Okay. Earmarking okay. is um, not done. Uh, uh, it's done a lot less now. And so the money comes in sort of a lump, and the various um, patient advocacy groups and uh, interested patients have to really let the NIH know that, hey, we're out here, we got a problem, and you should be spending some of that money in research on our on the disease that I have. 
Mm-hmm. And that is really um, the role of patient advocacy telling the Congress who appropriates the money and the NIH, which has got the money, to make sure you spend a sizable amount on on interstitial cystitis. Mm-hmm. If that falls off, if the Congress doesn't hear you, if the NIH doesn't hear you, research for IC will slip below the um, radar screen. Okay. But even when money's allocated, it's not just for IC research. It goes to the money is dispersed between a number of different. Um, it is, and it is until the um, program directors at the NIH um, get a hold of it, and then then they can allocate it specifically for IC research. But that has to be that has to come from above, saying put this amount of money into IC research. Okay. And so organizations that want to get these research dollars, they go to present their proposal or present their case? They present their case for money to be allocated to the disease that they're representing, both to members of Congress Mm -hmm. and to uh, the people at the NIH. Okay. Because I know each year they have a, a letter-writing campaign. Absolutely. And that goes to our congressmen, I guess? Is that? Yes. Okay. Yes. To try to influence them to vote in favor of allocating money to the ICA. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. That's how it happens, then. Okay. That's how it happens. Well, I'm beginning to understand it a little bit better, so. If it's all it's all federal money, and everybody's got their fingers wanting to use that federal money, and you have the squeaky wheel needs to be heard. Okay, okay. So, if there are people who have IC or friends and family of people who have IC, how can they influence the possibility of getting these research dollars? What can they do? They should write to their congressman and their senator, uh-huh. telling them when they appropriate money for NIH, they can write in the appropriation bill um, that money should be spent on IC research. They can't say the amount, but they should say they should write in there that money, part of this money, should be spent on IC research. That comes from the Congress, okay. Senate, and House. Then, um, when they send a letter to their congressperson, they should also send a letter to the NIH, director of the NIH, Okay. Um, and tell them the same thing. Okay. Look at, um, you know, you need to spend some of that money that you have received from the Congress on um, IC research, and I will, be lo- I will be watching to see if you do that. That's a very good idea. So the last and then go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say no, I'm, the go last ahead. question that we have time for right now is: Do you think that there will ever be found a successful treatment for interstitial cystitis or a way to prevent it? Sure, it's going to be a long road, um, and many many people are going to have to be studied. But I 
I, I, along with, I think, all of the investigators that work on IC research, feel that as we get to know more about the disease, we will be able to effectively treat people, we'll be able to identify who is susceptible to get the disease, and hopefully in the future, we can say that we can prevent the disease. That, I think, is a long shot, but certainly effectively treat and prevent is certainly within the foreseeable future. That is wonderful news. So, Dr. Nyberg, thank you so much for being my guest today. You have really taught me some things I didn't know. So I really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Okay. It's up to you to get the word out there. All right. And will you be willing to come back at some point in the future if we have more? Sure. All right. Sure. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health and Wellness. What if you could get the information that you've always needed from a good friend? If you don't know her already, you'll want to meet Janet Zapala. Janet is an accomplished radio and television personality who now brings her experience and a wealth of guests to VoiceAmerica.com. We'll feature discussions about food and drink, nutrition, lifestyles, and fitness, just to name a few. We'll talk about current events and what you want to hear about, too. The show is called Food for Thought. Tune in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You're listening to The Dr. Melanie Show with your host, Dr. Melanie Barton. To participate in our discussion this week, please call toll-free 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send an email to drmelaniebarton at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the Dr. Melanie Show on the Health and Wellness Channel. Dr. Nyberg from the National Institutes of Health taught us about how research gets funded. Now we're going to listen to Dr. Robert Moldwin from the Smith Institute that's going to tell us about some of the research that they have been involved in and how maybe you can become a participant. Today's program is sponsored by the ICA. You can find out more from them by going to www.ichelp.org. Now let's listen to the interview with Dr. Moldwin. We are fortunate today to have Dr. Robert Moldwin, a returning guest host to my show. He's the director of the Pelvic Pain Center 
at Smith Institute for Urology at Long Island Jewish Medical Center. That's a tongue twister to say all that. (laughs) So thank you for being with me again on the show. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. So today's whole focus, we're talking about research and funding and all that sort of thing. So your center does research. So can you tell our listening audience, where do you get your funding from? Well, funding among, in our institution, uh, through our you know, through our pelvic pain center, and as I presume it is with multiple groups that do investigations, can come from a whole bunch of different sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, of course, the federal government with NIH grants, and there are other divisions of the federal government where people go for grants. These are becoming harder and harder to get oh, uh, because yeah. uh, money is limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have private funding, and we rely a lot on private donations, which is it's amazing how wonderfully generous uh, people can be. So we have a, 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 a fund that we keep specifically devoted for projects that incorporate, um, that deal with interstitial cystitis and for other pelvic pain syndromes. Mm-hmm. Uh, other sources or other agencies, for example, the Interstitial Cystitis Association, uh, the Vulvodynia, the National Vulvodynia Association, many of these really wonderful um, uh, organizations um, are instrumental in collecting and, uh, funds, and um, and they have their own reviewers. When we we will submit, for example, an idea that we have, and they'll send it out the, our ideas and our protocols to expert reviewers who decide on who should get the, any specific funds. So it's very competitive, also, and that's sort of the the tough part as well. Well, who are the reviewers? Is that an organization, or is it? They're usually people who are experts in the field. A lot of them are my colleagues, uh, but a lot of it's also anonymous, so we don't really know who's reviewing what or what have Ah, you. And that keeps everybody honest. It's a good thing. So, Uh um, And that's been going on for years and years, and it's been successful. Well, good. Okay. So can you share with our listeners what current studies? I know you told me before the program that you have a lot of studies going on, so tell us about them, please. Well, again, it may be too long for this for your show. I'll let you know. <laughs> some of the, okay. um, well, one thing that's very exciting to us are some projects that we're going to be starting, uh, hopefully in the very near future. One is through a company. This is now through a pharmaceutical company, which is another source of, of, of uh-huh. uh, funding. Uh, this is a company called Taris, who's created a very interesting device that is actually it's a really super light plastic type device that's placed into the bladder and stays in place for about two weeks and slowly elutes or just sort of lidocaine which is an anesthetic comes out of the device and and comes in contact with the bladder wall Mm -hmm. and very early uh, really preliminary studies are showing some really neat efficacy uh, where even once the device is removed it seems to help in terms of pain and uh, the various complaints that patients with interstitial cystitis have uh, for met for months, which is a really neat thing. And even those patients who have uh, disease, inflammatory disease, these things called Hunter's ulcers, again, just preliminary uh, work shows that it may actually decrease the inflammatory events in these patients. So really neat stuff. Um, we're hoping to get started with that study within the next month or two. When you come out with something besides the lidocaine in it, I would like to hear about it because I'm allergic to lidocaine. But everybody's look well. That's another. Those are sort of proprietary issues. But uh-huh. of course, 
makes sense. If you have a device that can deploy various medications, can you use it for other things? And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe for overactive bladder or, or different types of anesthetics. These are all possibilities in the future. But again, the research is needed. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's another study, Allergan, uh, who makes Botox, uh, the botulinum toxin, the thing that people are using, the medication or actually the toxin that people use to get rid of the wrinkles and all that other business. Mm-hmm. It's also used for muscle spasm and various other things. FDA-wise, uh, but now uh, Allergan is looking uh, at its usefulness in uh, conditions such as interstitial cystitis, actually in terms of blocking pain. Uh, there's some anecdotal reports. Actually, there's some reports in the literature suggesting that it may be helpful, but now we really need to take it uh, to, to bring it, uh, you know, to, to test it out uh, with larger scale studies. So they're looking at that now, and we may be part of that project. Would that be injecting it? through um, a syringe or would it be instilling That's it? That's correct. We'd have to look into the bladder uh-huh. uh, and, and take a very skinny needle through the telescope, the cystoscope, and inject in multiple regions of the bladder wall. Uh-huh. And this gets into, well, are, will interstitial cystitis patients be able to tolerate that? So these are questions and perhaps even modifications or protocols that have to be made so that we can, so that it's, it's practical for patient use. So okay. these are the real issues out there, and that's why protocols sometimes switch. And you know, while you're you're going ahead, and we have to make revisions and, and all mm-hmm. that. Okay. Um, we're also part of a nine-group uh, consortium project, which is headed by Curtis Nickel. He's another expert in this field in Canada. Um, it's a really neat group, and we're studying all sorts of facets of interstitial cystitis based on questionnaires. So we're looking mm. at quality of life. How, how the support of the significant other in the relationship can have a, a tremendous impact on the, on the condition. Yes. Uh, also published recently, a really neat thing, uh, the comorbid conditions, the fact that interstitial cystitis, these bladders don't live in a vacuum. It's not just a bladder-based condition, and it really pushed the point that these patients have often irritable bowel syndrome, vulvodynia, mm-hmm. migraine headaches, chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, all these different, again, what we call comorbid conditions, which may also be source of uh, discomfort or frank pain for patients. It's important to get this out into the literature so other clinicians know about it so that they can understand, again, if you just attack the bladder, that's not necessarily going to give you the optimum results. Mm-hmm. We have realized for many years uh, that food is a very important part. Uh, I should not say just food, but diets, all the what are called the comestibles, the, the supplements, the foods, the beverages, everything that patients take in may have a profound effect on symptoms. Uh, Barbara Shorter, who's actually part of our, our facility here, is a, is a, a dietitian. Uh, professor of, of, of dietetics, and she works with us, and we've been working collaboratively for many years uh, and published on the association between patients' diets and their symptoms. Uh, we initially uh, published using a very extensive uh, questionnaire, looking at like 140 or more 
uh, various foods and beverages and so forth, looking at what makes the, the symptoms better, what makes them worse and so forth. But that's just not practical in, in everyday use for the clinician. So our project right now is to shorten that and to create a short, simple form that any clinician can use. And we've done so and we're in the process of val- what's called statistically validating that questionnaire so it can be used in future projects to investigate this more closely. Okay, Bar- Barbara's also- been on my show and talked about that study. So She's so, awesome. Uh-huh. She's just uh-huh. she's tired. Uh, so she's been really, uh, you know, one of the major pushers in this field, and I, uh, you know, multiple kudos to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a pleasure working with her as well, yes. uh, both yes. not only in the research arena but clinically with all our, well, our patients mm-hmm. here. Um, Barbara, as well as all of us, have realized that um, caffeine, or at least uh, foods and beverages that contain caffeine, seem to be uh, the big, the number one problem for patients to handle. Not that every patient has a problem, but again, it seems to be a significant issue for a majority of patients. And we're investigating, is it actually the caffeine in these, in these, in the coffee or in the chocolate or what have you that's causing the problem? So we have a, an interesting study just looking at caffeine, giving some patients a placebo, a, a, so to speak, sugar pill, and some patients getting a small of caffeine to see if what happens with symptoms and some of the preliminary studies are very interesting uh, that show that um, a lot of patients think that they're caffeine sensitive when in fact they're not as sensitive as they actually imagine. So interesting, interesting results so far, but that's a, a study in evolution. Okay. Uh, we've been very interested for many years in terms of the muscle dysfunction that interstitial cystitis and for males and females have. And we've done some studies looking at trigger points in this patient population. Uh, we've had, a, an, we're again very fortunate to work with some excellent uh, physical therapists who have academic interests in this field and have been doing mapping of, of trigger points. And hopefully that, that uh, information will be published hopefully soon. And that's also uh, uh, something in evolution can, right can now. Can you explain what a yeah. trigger point is? Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, trigger points are when we do physical examinations on patients, uh, we typically uh, do pelvic or rectal examination and or rectal examination, mm-hmm. and we're feeling not just for the bladder, not just for prostate and so forth, we're also feeling the muscles there because the muscles in many patients can be a source of pain. And all of a sudden we've come to one specific area and the patient jumps up and it feels like a, like a sort of like a knot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure everybody's had a knot in their back or whatever. You just want to massage it out. And that's, to, to oversimplify, that's often what physical therapists work with. They work with myofascial release techniques to try to get those knots, uh, those what we call trigger points, out. Um, it's not always that easy. Uh, and oftentimes we combine therapy with muscle relaxants and with topical heat and with uh, biofeedback, all sorts of different ways to deal with it. But no one's really done a great job in mapping. Where are they mostly? Where, which muscle groups are they involved with? Uh, how can we direct other clinicians uh, to find these uh uh, you know, in a in a more um, efficient way, I suppose. Okay. Well, so that's something on our agenda, and uh, again, we've been plotting these out. Okay. We uh, need, we have we enough. Need to, yeah. We need to take a break at this point in time, and when we come back, we will talk about some more. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health and Wellness. Do you know if kidney disease is affecting you? Are your kidneys healthy? 
You may have kidney disease and not even be aware of it. 26 million people have been affected by kidney disease. Teenagers today are being diagnosed with symptoms such as high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. These conditions can worsen kidney health and cause kidney disease. Be sure to tune in to improve your kidney health with your host, Dr. Rich Snyder, every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The information you get on this program could help save your life. You're listening to The Dr. Melanie Show with your host, Dr. Melanie Barton. To participate in our discussion this week, please call toll-free 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send an email to drmelaniebarton at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to The Dr. Melanie Show. We're listening to an interview with Dr. Moldwin from the Smith Institute talking to us about the research that they've done. If you want to become part of a study, you can either go to clinicaltrials.gov, ichelp.org, or call the Smith Institute at 516-734-8500. Now let's listen to the rest of that interview. We are back here with Dr. Moldwin, and we're talking about research that can be done for interstitial cystitis. We're talking about the various studies that have been done, and they're quite expansive, and, and we're not going to get to all of them. So let's move on to some other questions like, how do you find people to participate in your studies? That's a great question. Um, generally speaking, most of the patients... Uh, honestly come from our own practice. We, oh. One of the fortunate things that we have here is a very, I would have to say, a robust practice. Um, uh, it's myself. Um, I work with uh, Marina Ruzamovsky, who is an excellent nurse practitioner. We have a really great staff that uh, to be able to handle the, the patient load. Mm-hmm. But uh, And so we do have a great number of patients to draw upon, we'll call it. Okay. Um, I, Always, therapies and various uh, various research protocols are open to people outside any individual practice. And oftentimes, we'll actually, believe it or not, we'll put out advertisements. Uh, this is often done uh, in combination with our institutional review board, who makes sure that all the ethics and and every all the T's and the are are crossed and the I's are dotted and all that other uh, business. So we may put out some advertising there. Um, oftentimes patients will look up on the internet through uh, various websites such as uh, clinicaltrials.gov and find out which what types of studies are going on within any given locale. So these are probably the most common ways we, we, we go ahead with, uh, we, we accrue patients. Okay, well I know that many men feel like they're not part of the research because this is mainly found in women. So how do you uh, balance that out? Sometimes, unfortunately, some of the studies are specifically dedicated to female interstitial cystitis patients. Now, do I think that's fair? No. Okay. Uh, But from a practical perspective, because perhaps only one out of five to, probably the closest number we have right now is probably one out of five IC patients is male. It used to be one out of ten. But because many of these prostatitis patients have so many 
voiding symptoms, urination problems, and so forth, we think that it's probably they, they flip into the category of interstitial cystitis. Um, but getting back to the research issue, the, um, I think that the, it, it's, it's a problem. And for this, it's more or less for the sake of simplicity that most of the studies seem to be dedicated towards, uh, female patients. It's just easier to do it. And that people will take the path of least resistance, okay. as unfair as that might be. Mm-hmm. And is it, True. I've heard this. I don't know if it's accurate that there is a high incidence in the Jewish population of women. Is that? That's the. It's an interesting thing. That literature, that epidemiology, was published a, a long time ago, and I think between an increase in our, I think be, because of an increased sensitivity and more patients being identified in all socioeconomic and racial groups. I don't. I don't. I haven't really. I, I don't know if that's. Uh, probably an accurate uh, characterization. Okay. Uh, if I would, I would hazard to say that. Uh, I mean, our population, because we are in a very, very uh, multicultural environment here in New York, we see everybody. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't see a preponderance of any given um, uh, religion or or racial group or even uh, even economic group. Probably, uh, yeah, I, I would. So I think more, certainly more demographics need to be done. I think where we are right now as compared to where we were when that, that literature was published probably about 20, 25 years ago. Right. You're right. You're right. I've been around a long time. <laughs> How about genetic studies? Are there some genetic studies going on to see if it's... I'm not aware... Well, people are right now. Some investigators are looking at the real, uh, the some of some of the genetics involved. I think, from the practical perspective, I think most patients are interested not just in, uh, you know, um, the, the the genetics on a molecular level. They're interested in finding out, you know, if my daughter has interest, if I have interstitial cystitis, is my daughter or son likely to have it and unfortunately i don't know of any ongoing studies at this moment but i could be wrong okay. uh the latest uh the latest literature is that there does seem to be an increased uh chance of uh, of having a first degree relative with interstitial cystitis but yet it still remains overall pretty low okay so still needs more research done to determine as that. most there <laughs> right sure. right so when you get some positive results what do you do with that information? Well, I think, a, a po- of course, a positive result is very exciting. Yes. So the first thing you want to do is tell everybody. Yes. So usually, as it works, uh, before anything is published, because that's the main thing we want to ultimately do, uh, usually these things get out broadcast. Uh, they get broadcast out into our specific meetings. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the American Urological Association has an annual meeting. There is a group called SUFU, Society for Urodynamics and Female Urology, uh, which is a subspecialty meeting in urology. The urogynecology uh, sector has their own meetings, and we can talk up at podiums or create posters and discuss things intimately with our colleagues who do similar work. Uh, we get feedback at those times, which is really instrumental in guiding any further research. And ultimately, of course, we'd like to publish. And that's the tough part, actually, because we have to sit down there at the desk. It's not This has nothing to do with patient care anymore and spend our weekends sort of writing things up. Mm-hmm. Then we 
submit it for publication. And then just as remember, I mentioned about people who have to review your research to see if it's worthwhile to be funded and all that. Well, now it has to go through another review of people who think, is this research after it's all written up? Does it does it pass muster? Is it reasonable? Is it new? Does it say some important things? Is it going to change? Is it will it change the way we treat patients? Um, Is it scientifically performed correctly. And a lot of times what you think is good research, other people don't. It gets rejected or it has to be revised in a way, and that slows the, the process down. The problem is for patients is that they, for example, once the, 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 the investigators go to the meeting and they're up there on a podium session, of course, this now goes out into all the bulletins. Yes. It's not published yet. And then, of course, it funnels down to patients and they People get all excited. You know, when is this going to come out when the actual paper isn't even published? Mm. So that's why it's so frustrating for patients sometimes. You know, they hear about these things and then all of a sudden they come into their doctor's office and they hear, oh, well, that's, you know, we don't really know all that much about it. It may take, unfortunately, uh, quite some time before it even comes out. And it's a little depressing. But I'm not depressed. It, we do see progression. We do see these things come, as we say, to market, uh, certainly if it's a medication or a device and all that. Um, and when it does, it's it's uh, it's really uh, sort of a, a neat thing to watch and to be part of mm-hmm. it. Your book that you wrote, did you include some of your research findings in it? Uh, some of it. I, I, I'll tell you, I have to re- reread my book. <laughs> Can you tell our listening audience the name of your book, should they want to get it? Sure. It's called The Interstitial Cystitis Survival Guide. Um, It was written, I hate to say, I can't believe it. I look back like 10 years ago and people have been trying to get me to to write a revision to it. Um, I would say that probably probably 85 to 90 percent of the the things in in the book are still right right on the money. And there, there does need to be some revision, some things that look promising, for example, something called ricinoferrotoxin, which is sort of like a super hot pepper type mm-hmm. material put into the bladder that looks good, really doesn't look good. We talked about putting uh, something called BCG, which is uh, sort of like the tuberculosis bacteria into the bladder, which ultimately, which sort of looked good at that time, no longer really looks like it's going to be, it was certainly far from a home run. So there are some things that look promising, but don't. Now we have a whole bunch of new things coming up, which if I had to put in a, in a book, that's what would be in it. Uh, so I just have to, again, uh, use some of my, I guess, my weekend time. <laughs> Your family <laughs> might not like that. <laughs> but you know what the neat thing is? You have programs like yourself yourself uh, here talking, you know, online. And uh, these are wonderful things. The Interstitial Societies Association, the, Inter- uh, the Interstitial Societies Network. There's lots of other ways to get some of the real current stuff. I think the value of the book was really if a patient needs to sort of sit down and see it in print, and particularly for patients who are not all that Internet savvy, it's a, it's a good way to, um, to sit down and get the basics in. Okay. So if somebody wanted to become part of one of your research projects you have going on now, what would they need to do? Um, if someone would, they need to call us up. Uh, we have um, the Arthur Smith, I'm part of the Arthur Smith Institute for Urology. Um, we have a website, um, which I have to actually <laughs> look up myself. Uh, but if they look up the, um, the Smith Institute for Urology on Google, uh, they can find our website and we will 
when we do have research projects, we post them online. Okay. Uh, we will, any of our patients, certainly we put up posters around the office and all that. And we have, a, I mean, I can give certainly our phone number, which is uh, 516-734-8500, which is our general number. Uh, my secretary's name is Donna, and um, she would make appropriate transfers to our research personnel who um, uh, who run these studies, specifically uh, Monica Johnson, who's wonderful. She's our research coordinator who who, uh, who runs these studies and uh, and um, is just doing a fabulous job. As you can see, there are lots of things going on. She's sort of uh, she's got a lot of apples and oranges uh, up in the air at the same time, and she's doing a great job with it. Okay. Well, unfortunately, our time has come to a close. But in one sentence, can you wrap up or give some hope to IC patients out there? I think that um, in years past, uh, there was literally no research mm-hmm. regarding interstitial cystitis. We knew so little about it. Clinicians didn't know about it. And even investigators didn't know very much about it. I did a PubMed search, which is one of our medical research um, um, uh, databases, um, to look for articles. There is literally a doubling. Within one year, from from 2009 to 2010, and now we're in 2011, but between those two years, there's literally a doubling of the number of articles published in the field of interstitial cystitis. There is so much more activity on a federal level, on a private funding level, on an organizational level like the Interstitial Cystitis Association. It really, it's very encouraging because the more people who are active in the field, the more work will get done and we'll make some more progress. Okay. But I'm very optimistic about everything involved. Well, thank you very much for giving us this optimistic view and hope. And I appreciate you being on my show today, and I hope you'll be willing to come back at some future point. Today, we heard about research for IC patients. If you want to find out more, go to www.ichelp.org. Next week, we're going to learn about how to distinguish colds from allergies in infants and about infant massage. I want to thank all the Voice America staff today for being so welcoming to me. Remember, to help yourself, help someone else. Until next week, goodbye for now. Thank you so much for joining us this week for the Dr. Melanie Show. Please join your host, Dr. Melanie Barton, again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you next week for another great program.